It's Tuesday, October 19th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Welcome back to Radio Free Oz on RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. My co-host sitting across from me, David Oz. Hey, Pete. Well, 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 David, this is not a good time for the Democrats, I, at least by the poll numbers. Yeah, okay. the poll numbers, although the, the, the poll pullers pull the polls, you know. It's kind of like the, uh, the, uh, those taffy machines that they used to have. Well, well you see, there's a plus or minus of like minus or plus uh, five, and then there's my own personal minus or plus because I think the whole thing is fucked, and that's one or two. And-, and then there's the cell phone issue, which is they don't poll by cell phone, and cell phone users tend to be more de- younger and more Democrat, ick, well, than Republican. They certainly tend to be younger because there aren't any any kids who have household phones. So no, forget that. No, no, there's no one. There's no young people with the last name of Landline anymore. Yeah. So here, here's the polls, right? Here's, here's here's this is about confidence. Voters' level of confidence has appeared to solidify for the midterm elections, and it's not good news for the Democrats. For the second straight month, NBC's voter confidence index shows American voters' level of confidence in President Obama and the Democrats is about minus forty. That sounds like the kind of weather I was in in Barrow, Alaska. <laughs> you and the polar bears, right? Oh, man. September VCI average was minus 39, so they lost another point. This is worse than President Clinton and the Democrats in 94, when they lost 54 seats. Ronald Reagan and the Republicans in 82, when they lost 26 seats. And it remains, it remains better than former George W. Bush in 2006, who had a VCI of minus 65, and the Republicans lost 30 seats. They didn't have as many to lose. So... Who knows if they're going to take over the well, house? There's a lot of seats to be lost here, yeah. and uh, let's let's take a look at what they are here. What what are these seats? There are seats in two places, right? Yeah, there yeah. are seats in the Senate. In the Senate, uh, everybody's got two senators, whether they are big, small, indifferent, hot, cold, or, or invisible. <laughs> it doesn't I mean, matter. With, they got I mean, two of them. Wyoming has about as many people as we have here in on the island, and they've got two senators. I don't want to disparage any of these these magnificent. Distinguished gentlemen who are sitting in those seats. In the House of Representatives, we have an uncontrollable rabble. Well, it's a rabble. It's, it's meant to be a rabble. It's meant Dave. to be a rabble. That's I'm what not the founding fathers them. wanted. You know, that's, factions. That's, they want to keep it right, royally. Right. right. That's, but, it's in the Constitution, sort of. But the idea was, at least, at, you know, I, I know this is very old school, but. People who went to the House of Representatives usually had some level of maturity. They had already done something in business or law, some sort of a profession. There was a reason why they moved into public service. I mean, some less than others, but the fact you didn't have these ignorant yahoos, you know, uh, ready to get up there. They want to take off their SS reenactment uniforms so they can, you know, so they can swear themselves in as a representative of the United States. It just gets crazy. Well, Boehner, Boehner, John Boehner, the guy who's presumably going to rule this rabble, okay, is a guy, you know, like W., that if you met on the street, you would walk to the other side. I mean, these are people I don't want to know. I mean, I read his history, I see what kind of bozo zip berserker this guy is. I, I would. Why would you want to be his friend? He's power, the, power. You want to be his friend. He is the only one that gave money to Rich Lott, the the Nazi reenactor, right? And <laughs> and Cantor, who's the whip, the Republican yeah. whip, and and a Jew, has completely denounced the man. And so Lott turns around and says, "Oh, you're just as bad as the Democrats." And Boehmer says, "No, he doesn't have to give the money back. I don't see why he should have to do that." This man, it's about power. It's about it, well, I mean, we live in a time, David. Who would have thought? I remember when 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 Richard Nixon lost the election to to John Kennedy, right? And and I said, that's it. My dad said, oh, no. Richard Nixon is coming back. My dad was smart about these things, all right? So when Karl Rove got, when Karl Rove left with the Bush Bush coup, I was silly enough to think that basically he was going to get basically ridden out of town on a rail. He's back. He rules, man. Satan is alive and well. But here's the difference, okay? Satan is out there, and now he's got another mask on, and that's this Tea Party mask, okay? This is not just the Republicans are going to take over from the Democrats. This is 
the this is the tea partiers that is not people who are dedicated to any sort of public service people who don't like public service who would like to disrupt and discontinue public service hate anybody who has a sense of 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 service itself or or belonging or part of the what they'd call the elite or the establishment i.e. any connection to any institution with any history these are yahoos yeah and it's this the 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 extent of the danger in the House of Representatives is how many yahoos take over because if they continue to vote no about everything then nothing will happen as usual and it'll all be Obama's fault because you know he's it's his fault hey hey it's your fault Mr. President gee I can't get a job and I don't have a I don't know what to do Mr. President but it's your fault Hey, Mr. President, where can I find a job? Yeah, it, it, it's true. Uh, I think, of course, thinking hasn't helped me in the past, <laughs> I think that people will come to realize how bogus this whole thing is, but we are going to have to come to terms with the fact that the era of American exceptionalism is over, baby. We're going to have to literally become real people doing real things on real budgets, you know? It's going to feel good after a while. But right now, everybody is in free fall. And you've got the ultra-rich sitting there just squatting on the recovery. Mm, you know, it's like mm. Martin Luther on the John. These people are like, you know, the pro- these are the proctologists of the, of the depression. They're keeping it all inside. And uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to break that log jam excuse me for mixing my metaphors boy that was a that oh. was a that was a big mix there oh. let's not go back over it okay i don't know i'm not going to go back now, i think over american that exceptionalism has got to be parked out in the california desert along with all those airplanes that aren't flying anymore this is a good overview of our relations with pakistan the second half of the AFPAC, and where it's going it's in Newsweek, written by John Berry with help from Sami Yusufrazi in Islamabad. So we're kind of on the ground here. Of the two nations described jointly as AFPAC, one has nuclear weapons and the other doesn't. One has a population of 175 million and a GDP of 166 billion. The other has only 28 million citizens, a literacy rate under 30%, and an economy, if you don't count the opium trade, worth no more than $13 billion. One is a haven for Osama bin Laden and the remnants of the terror network that launched the 9-11 attacks. The 100,000 U.S. troops sent to root out al-Qaeda are in the other one. By now, the notion that Pakistan is the real prize, the strategic center of gravity in the Afghanistan war, hardly bears repeating. Yet, in a telling moment in his book, Obama's Wars, Bob Woodward notes that during the administration's deliberations last year, when then National Security Advisor Jim Jones suggested referring to the region as PAC-AF instead, the Pakistanis were immediately distressed that the inversion might suggest that Pakistan was the main problem. Nobody wanted to upset our Pakistani allies, AFPAC it has been ever since. In America's relationship with Pakistan, carrots predominate, in part because we have so few sticks. After our almost unquestioned support for Pakistani dictator General Pervez Musharraf didn't elicit sufficient cooperation against the Taliban, we showered the civilian government that replaced him with $7.5 billion in aid, to little effect. American generals praised the very real sacrifices in blood and treasure made by the Pakistani army in the fight against militants in Swat and South Waziristan, yet calls to broaden the campaign to North Waziristan, home to one of the deadliest Afghan insurgent groups, the Haqqani Network, go unheeded. U.S. and Pakistani diplomats recite platitudes about our common enemy, and Pakistan's president, Asif Ali Jadari, repeatedly invokes his assassinated wife, former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, to underscore his dedication to battling extremists. But that depends on who's extremists. The events of the past week make clear why the United States has been so solicitous. After a U.S. helicopter attack across the border killed two Pakistani soldiers at a frontier outpost, Islamabad shut down one of the main crossings into Afghanistan in protest. Three-quarters of non-lethal supplies intended for coalition troops in Afghanistan travel through Pakistan, and they shut it down. 
The crossing point quickly clogged with trucks that couldn't pass, making them easy targets. Militants torched more than 100 fuel tankers as Pakistani authorities largely stood aside and watched. Impeding supply routes is not the strongest leverage Pakistan can bring to bear. The high-tech drone war that has eviscerated al-Qaeda's ranks, killing 17 commanders in the last nine months, is run out of Pakistan and is largely dependent on Pakistani intelligence for targeting. Yeah, we have to count on those guys to target where they are, who they are, who needs to go. So if the intelligence service has a deal with somebody, they're just not in the crosshairs. Islamabad publicly denies any role in the predator strikes and loudly protests the collateral damage when civilians are killed. But it hasn't grounded the CIA drones so far. By the way, this is a military campaign. What is the CIA doing there? Nobody asked me if they could become an extension of our military interventions. America's forbearance, though, is waning. In a report sent to Congress on October 4th, the Obama administration admitted that the Pakistan military has continued to avoid military engagements that would put it in direct conflict with Afghan Taliban or al-Qaeda forces in North Waziristan. There is a reason for this, a political choice, as the report says. The Pakistani military has long tolerated Afghan insurgents like the Akhanis, who direct their attacks into Afghanistan only. Those groups, which include the Keita Shura, led by the one-eyed Mullah Muhammad Omar, are Islamabad's insurance policy, agents who are meant to look after Pakistani interests when the United States eventually withdraws the bulk of its forces from the region. General David Petraeus, tasked with turning around the war in Afghanistan, has concentrated the surge of U.S. forces in the Taliban heartland in the south, leaving his eastern flank vulnerable. That's Haqqani's I-95, says one army officer who asked for anonymity when discussing the intelligence matters. As insurgents pour freely across the border, the officer continues, U.S. soldiers are getting hammered. The brazen chopper attacks into Pakistan, a red line for Islamabad, are one sign of U.S. impatience. So is the intense barrage of predator strikes over the last month, a record 22 of them. Some of those attacks reportedly were meant to disrupt a brewing terror plot in Europe. One killed four militants with German citizenship. But others have targeted Haqqani commanders and fighters. According to a source involved in the discussions, administration officials have reluctantly begun to consider options for stepping up the campaign against the Haqqanis. These include sending U.S. special operation forces across the border and even launching a full-scale bombing campaign. Uh-oh. Islamabad argues that Pashtun insurgents like the Haqqanis will be needed in order to negotiate an end to the war. The Pakistani military believes you need the Haqqani network involved to help bring Pashtun Taliban elements into some kind of power-sharing arrangements in Kabul, says defense analyst Riafat Hussein. Oh boy, I tell you, we can't win for losing. But that's not inconsistent with America's recent aggressiveness. In Iraq, too, Petraeus's forces first pounded the Sunni insurgents before striking deals with them. The point, then and now, is to bring the enemy to the table in a weakened position. We really think these drone attacks and these special op forces are going to weaken the Taliban in Pakistan, an Islamist nation, where vast amounts of the territory, if not controlled by the Taliban, are certainly heavily influenced by them and by other jihadist groups that are similar in their, you know, in their general strategy. We are thoroughly kidding ourselves, and I'm paying for it. What can no longer be glossed over is the fact that for now and the foreseeable future, America's interests do not and will not align with Pakistan's. We do not share a common enemy. Pakistan's enemy, as it always has been, is India. And by extension, an Afghan government seen to be dominated by non-Pashtuns with close ties to New Delhi. From the get-go, ladies and gents, since we started back using the Pakistani intelligence agencies to help us fight the Ruskies covertly 30 years ago, they have been using our money and our men and our intelligence to shore up their army against India. They were formed as a break-off from India. They've been at war with India. That's all they care about. Afghanistan is just a pawn in their plans, and we're a pawn amongst their pawns. Oh,
Okay, Dave, this is from the Daily Beast. How can you not love Carl Palladino? It's oh. it's great to have these yeah, yeah, bullies. Yeah, I love it too. Yeah, I mean, these bullies, these ignoramuses, but they, they keep things flowing, you know? Uh, Carl Palladino says kids shouldn't be brainwashed into thinking it's okay to be gay or to be taken to a disgusting gay pride parade. That's no. where he's at, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he yeah. had no problem when his son William ran Cobalt, a nightclub once dubbed buffalo's gay club of the moment no you're kidding me and he had no problem cashing the rent checks from cobalt and another gay club called bubbles too both of which were located for years in buildings he owned from may 2004 through july 2008 william palladino co-owned a nightclub on delaware avenue in downtown buffalo okay liquor license records show the club was run under the corporate name 2975 group llc while the building was housed in was owned by one of carl palladino's many companies the huron group llc all right so that that's fine uh now a march review of cobalt in the buffalo news described it as way gay Wait, day. Noting the queens, the techno, the cocktails, the kind of gyration normally confined to Manhattan was in full flaming force oh, at no, Cobalt. Not, not in, in Buffalo. In his son's running. Uh, no. At some point yeah. in late 2005, the club's name was changed to Tantra. Kevin Van Wagner, then a Cobalt bartender, recalled a rapid switch to a straight clientele. The way they did it was really horrible, he said. They told us we were no longer going to be a gay bar and we were no longer going to have jobs. He said the owners kept Cobalt's three straight bartenders and got rid of the rest. They got rid of all of us gay people. So he's, he's really, really, really nice people. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. They got rid of us all. And they changed um, the club name to Tantra? Yeah, yeah. What, they expect couples? What is this, an Indian love nest? I don't know. Tantra's been going downhill yeah, uh, ever since there was a guy was stabbed in the back there. Oh, I was, he's trying but, to, one of those positions where... Yeah. You yeah, get the girl yeah, and yeah, the thing. Yeah, with, with the knife. With the knife. September 2006, the state pulled the liquor license, citing assault and booze. Cobalt was the only gay club he owned because uh, Bu- Bubbles 2 was housed in one of his buildings. Operating under the name Queen City Entertainment, it described itself as a bar <laughs> where anyone and everyone is welcome and prejudices are left at the door. That's probably where he collected them all. Bubbles 2. Yeah. Let's make our way down to Bubbles 2, Bubbles' we? landlord may not have been welcome. Over the last three oh. days, Palladino spent much time attacking what he calls... The I love this. The homosexual agenda. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and he's gone through all this. Then he got that rabbi, the, the Orthodox rabbi, who got him to talk about. Uh, well, here's the uh, thing: oh, Paladino just... owns so much real estate oh, in God. Buffalo that it would be hard if they had a gay club. It would be in a building that he owned. I mean, the chances are pretty good. His son running it—that's a little suspicious. But you know. Uh, did you see the picture of him bear hugging? He's going down the streets now, hugging everybody. He gives everybody a big Carl Palladino hug, you know. Yeah, and probably picks their pocket. Oh, watch that. Well, picks their pocket. That's a that's a that's a that's a that's a pistol he got stuck in the belt in the back there when the but he's but he's not without his supporters man. oh really i mean hordes of politicians and pundits are blasting him you know but conservative columnist ann coulter oh, came to his defense and, and on fox okay. news channel yeah. calling him a great warrior great warrior. who wants to cut taxes <laughs> thank you ann the woman who can't go to her own uh what do you call it family reunions they won't have her i wouldn't have her As I drove off the ferry onto the mainland recently, I read an election sign that accused the local Democratic congressman of bankrupting the country since 1992. I'm getting whiffs of 1932 and 1984 here. 1932, bankrupting the country since 1992, read, we're in this mess because they stabbed us in the back. Hitler did a great job of convincing an angry and dispirited German people that all their problems lay at the feet of the not-me. It was the Jews and the commies in 32. It's Obama and the liberals today. 1984. The barrage of lies and slander coming out of the right-wing media maw is Orwellian in proportion. Thanks to a reactionary majority on the Supreme Court, secret money from anywhere, inside and outside the country, is pouring into the campaign, doled out by the likes of the Koch brothers and Satan's little helpmate, Karl Rove. Six months ago, when the Tea Party was beginning to steep and the Republican far right was beginning to draw blood from the president, I called up my reserve of American optimism and figured that the people's common sense would come to the defense of our democracy. It didn't. Goebbels was right. I was wrong. 
In a time of desperate confusion and economic collapse, 30s Germany in the throes of the Great Depression, and present-day America in the grip of the double dip, it would take a nation of philosopher kings to accept their share of responsibility for the disaster and devise a reasonable plan for healing the Commonwealth. We have been so numbed and weakened by our addiction to trash TV, empty calories, and bogus credit that, as it stands, we are incapable of standing up to the anti-democratic forces co-opting our economy, our ecology, our foreign policy, and our civil liberties. We are being occupied by hostile forces just as certainly as the 13 colonies were occupied by the British. We need a second American revolution to free ourselves. Instead of a tea party, a TV party, unhook our flat screens and let Glenn and Sarah and Sean stumble in the darkness. Turn away from the happy meals of the undead and cook up ourselves a local farm fresh future. Take a look at that hand of credit cards we've dealt ourselves. How long are we going to stay in the toilet pulling for a flush? We don't have to wait for November 2nd to wake up. Obama is a truly decent man with the patience and humility of our first president. Speak up for him. Speak up for the vision of America he has risked his political future to create and defend. We are the people. We can do it. Well-educated, well-fed, and well-intentioned, we can take this country back from the forces of ignorance and greed. Remember, no Tom Paine, no gain. I was born an American. I was raised an American. And I'll die an American in America with a Here's a story out of Politico about one of my favorite freaks, Newt Gingrich. In August, Newt Gingrich compared backers of a mosque near Ground Zero to Nazis putting up signs at the Holocaust Museum. In September, there was this assertion that President Barack Obama is motivated by a Kenyan anti-colonial worldview. And early October already has brought a declaration that Democrats are the party of food stamps. It has been a busy season for the former House Speaker, who seems every few weeks to return to a playbook he first began using three decades ago, lobbing rhetorical grenades into the crowd and basking in the uproar that follows. Gingrich is used to hearing gasps of outrage from his Democratic targets, but his latest provocations have also brought groans and rolled eyes from Republican quarters, where some prominent figures <clears throat> warn that Gingrich's instinct for bombast is an obstacle to his being taken seriously as a party leader or a promising presidential contender in 2012. Wouldn't that be something? An Obama-Gingrich election? Whew! The squirming on his own side highlights a predicament for Gingrich. In some ways, this should be his moment, the kind of harsh, attack-based politics that were novel when Gingrich first began specializing them during the late 1970s have become in many ways the norm in the modern political media environment. But some skeptics, including some Republicans, who say they wish Gingrich well, contend he has never learned the difference between going to the edge and going over it. Earlier this year, he wrote that Obama and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are part of a secular socialist machine that is as dire a threat to the country now as Hitler's Germany or the Soviet Union was in the past. This is a college professor. No, this is an ignoramus. And Democrats suggest he has been trafficking so long in ostentatiously partisan statements, Bill Clinton recently called it Gingrich's shtick, that he has devalued his own currency. A longtime associate, former Representative Vin Weber, said Gingrich knows that his sharp tongue can wound himself as well as his political opponents. The two men last week traveled on the campaign trail in Weber's home state of Minnesota. He's keenly aware of the fact that he has to be more disciplined if he wants to run for president, said Weber. He wants to try to discipline himself. It's impossible. The man is a child. Based on his conversations, Weber said, There is no doubt in my mind that Gingrich hopes to be the GOP nominee in 2012. He absolutely wants to run, and I think he intends to run. Two of the most important commodities in a candidate running for president are focus and discipline, and he's got neither, said an advisor to Mitt Romney of Gingrich. He could be a great help to the party if he'd so choose, if he'd only help with messaging and ideas and be less of a provocateur, but that's not what he wants to do. 
Gingrich's longtime spokesman, Rick Tyler, offered a robust defense of his boss's rhetoric and said leaders who speak bold truths often cause more timid listeners to recoil. These aren't bold truths. This is balderdash. These are lies. These are... These are the worst kind of garbage coming out of American politicians. There's nothing bold about it at all. Reckless, yes. Bold, no. They are the same people who were upset when Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union the evil empire, he said, adding that FDR, too, said some pretty provocative things in World War II. Yeah, World War II. Yeah, he was heavy on the Nazis. Yeah, he was heavy on the Japanese. We're at war with them. They were beasts. This is Obama. He's president of the United States. He's not a socialist. He's not as dangerous as Stalin and Hitler. Gingrich is a fool. The Atlanta Constitution, which endorsed Gingrich in some of his early races, switched sides in 1978 after what it said was a campaign that had gone beyond vigor into demagoguery and plain lying. That's it. A lying demagogue. I think that's a good description of Newt Gingrich. His invective in the 1980s tormented House Speaker Tim O'Neill, who complained that a Gingrich speech on the House floor calling Democrats appeasers was the lowest thing I've ever seen in my 32 years in Congress. And Jim Wright, who later wrote that, at heart, Gingrich is a nihilist who, across his career, has been intent on destroying and demoralizing the existing order. Hmm, A liar, a demagogue, and a nihilist. And he wants to run for president. Maybe he's just what we need in 2012. He can run with Sarah Palin or Christine O'Donnell or the devil's daughter. More than a decade earlier, Obama and Pelosi have provided... More than a decade later, Obama and Pelosi have provided Gingrich with new lyrics to a familiar tune. He has played it in books and on the platform as a commentator on Fox News. In a speech last spring, he said Obama is the most radical president in American history. (laughs) The secular socialist values he and other top Democrats stand for, he argued in his most recent book, represent as great a threat to America as Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union once did. Where he commented on this garbage. In an interview last November, Gingrich advised that Republicans should treat Obama's coming legislative victory on health care just like the Nobel Prize, i.e. shrugging it off as much ado about nothing. Not long afterwards, though, he had reversed course, calling the health care bill the most corrupt legislation I have seen in my lifetime and speaking favorably of how most Republicans would vote to repeal it if they win back Congress. Newt. Ah, why doesn't somebody neuter this guy? Cruising across the USA, taking in the land, wider than a Cadillac, longer than a van. Capacity 16 children, four tubes of old toothpaste. Three tanks for the gasoline, two tanks for the waste RV. RV. Mom and Dad in the front seat, country on the radio. Tim and Jim at the table, rock on the stereo. Sue and Lou in the back room. Trumpet and clarinet Sissy's still in the bathroom Junior's pants are wet RV RV The modern cowhands riding velvet saddles On horses made of fiberglass they fly Air-conditioned covered wagons cross the prairie The pioneering spirit never dies RV RV The tenters watch with wonder The bikers are afraid The rangers take their aspirin The animals run away The truckers see a roadblock The wagons see a wall The compacts see a mountain 
the horses see a stall RV. RV. From Jersey to Miami without stopping. From Texas to Alaska in one day. The stories of these heroes are astounding. The tickets and the tolls they had to pay. RV. RV. So if you're out there cruising on a U.S. interstate, and you see that great white wonder, please make no mistake. On the road there is no justice, might always makes right. The suburban yacht is the king of the road, so you better get that right, RV. RV. Yeah! Get along there, get along there! From Politico, if the newest Census Bureau estimates stay close to form, President Barack Obama's re-election roadmap could look considerably different than the one that took him to the White House in 2008. Back then, he won 68% of the electoral vote, 365 electoral votes in all, powered by wins in eight of the nation's 10 most populous states. But population growth and shifts of residence between states will impact the way electoral votes are reapportioned in advance of the 2012 elections. And it appears more votes are moving towards states that he lost and away from the ones he won the first time around. Yeah, he doesn't have problems enough, okay? Yeah, so people are moving to where, like, Texas, where it's impossible to do anything except carry a gun and hate the not me. Between reapportionment and the erosion of support in certain states and regions where he had successes two years ago, the 2012 path to victory could become more complicated. It's certainly hard to argue that the shift, if anything, but is but a problem for Obama, said Tom Monier of the Liberal National Committee for an Effective Congress, which follows population trends and voting data closely. Nothing will be official, of course, until after December when the U.S. Census Bureau completes its tallies. That population data will determine how House seats are parceled out among the states, as well as the allocation of electoral votes. The formula is a state's total number of House seats plus two. But a study released last month by Election Data Services reported that some of the biggest states Obama carried are poised to lose electoral votes, while some of the biggest that opposed him are likely to gain. New York, the nation's third largest state and an Obama stronghold in 2008, is likely to lose two electoral votes. The same is true for Ohio, another state carried by the president, which will also lose two. Other likely one-vote losers are Illinois, Iowa, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, Missouri, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Obama won all of them except Missouri and Louisiana. It does make it a little bit tougher on Democrats, said EDS President Kim Brace. It basically throws the electoral vote a little bit more toward the Republican side, with the shift going from the Northeast and the upper Midwest and to the South and to the West. It's not overly dramatic, he said, but if you get a real close election, it could make a difference. It'll change the mechanics from a campaign standpoint of which states they need to go after. According to the EDS estimates, the biggest winner will be Texas, a solid Republican state in 2008 that is expected to add four new electoral votes. The other likely beneficiaries of additional electoral votes are Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, South Carolina, Utah, and Washington, all of which are expected to gain a seat each. Obama won Washington and Nevada, but lost the other four. Uh, Then there is Florida, site of a crucial Obama victory last time, which is set to pick up two new votes, making it all the more important in a close contest with a redefined map. We're extraordinarily excited about it, and it means good things for us, said John Thrasher. It's a good name. The chairman of the Florida Republican Party. We're going to be an important state in 2012. Two more congressional seats will make it an even bigger deal, and certainly having the Republican convention here in Florida energizes our folks even more. 
In total, the movement represents a net shift of only 12 votes, six leaving the Obama column and moving into what was the John McCain column. In an electoral vote landslide like 2008, the shift of a dozen votes wouldn't have mattered a bit since Obama won 365 to John's 173. But Obama's road to the magic number of 270 votes was already going to be a trickier endeavor since some of the states he captured late last time, like Indiana and North Carolina, are considered by some to be one-time aberrations, not permanent shifts. A Democrat can't get by winning what has become the traditional path to victory, the northeastern states, Pacific states, and portions of the Midwest, Bonnier said, which means the map has to be expanded, obviously likely into the South and likely Colorado. Martin Frost, the former Texas congressman and chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, agreed. Obama needs to try to win Sunbelt states where he did well in 2008, like Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida, all of which may gain electoral votes because of the census, he said. He has to win all over the country. He can't just concentrate on one or two parts of the country. Several experts pointed to some promising signs for Obama in the changing map, notably the growing number of Hispanics in several population-gaining states, voters who are tilting Democratic in their voting patterns. It gives him some voters to appeal to in states like California, Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico, said GOP consultant Paul Musser of New Frontier Strategy, but he added, If I'm David Axelrod, sitting in Chicago next spring, surrounded by a sea of red state governors in the central battlegrounds of 2012, I'm starting to scratch my head. Hmm. And he ain't got much hair up on that head to scratch. Or am I thinking of some other harried or unharried Democrat? From Talking Points Memo. Faced with the prospect of squaring off in 2012 against the first African-American president, some Republicans are begging the governor of Mississippi to stay out of the running. Now, I love the vision of GOP rainmakers on their knees before the rotund governor of Mississippi, pleading with him not to remove his hat from his ever-swelling head and toss it into the ring. According to Politico's Mike Allen, a handful of well-known Republicans will reach out to Governor Haley Barber and urge him, for the good of his party, to run for chairman of the Republican National Committee rather than the party's nomination for president, as he currently plans. They know he's a whole lot better at squeezing money out of fat cats than votes out of ordinary Joes. He did win in Mississippi, but it is Mississippi after all. Barber, who is currently head of the Republican Governors Association, the largest pot of party money on the GOP side, will be tempted away from a run at Obama with two tasty plums. And how can a man with his obvious appetites turn away from tasty plums? Plum number one, the argument that he could make an immediate impact on his party at a critical juncture. Plum number two, Barber would get a plum job like ambassador to London if the Republicans win in 2012. Can you imagine that poor scene bigot at the court of St. James? Current RNC chair Michael Steele has become something of a laughingstock for political observers, and his tenure has not produced the same kind of fundraising results Barber uh, brought to the RGA back when the Republicans took the House in 1994. Republicans might be wary also of what a 2012 fight with Barber at the top of the GOP ticket might look like. Obama versus Barber. Barber. It would be like Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling all over again with the same disappointing results for the Aryan nation. The Mississippi governor is not known for his centrism, nor his particularly calming rhetoric on racial matters, as we all learned earlier this year during the kerfuffle over Virginia Governor Bob McDonald's Confederate History Month declaration. It is not significant, Barber told CNN in April, referring to McDonald's decision to leave out any mention of slavery out of the Virginia Declaration. It's trying to make a big deal out of something that doesn't amount to diddly, Barber added. Haley Barber, the man who thinks slavery is just diddly and compared the Gulf oil scum to moose. By the way, McDonald had the decency to apologize. Barber A truly decency-challenged politician stands firmly behind his snide racial slurs. 
What's that all about? So, Dave, last week, the National Organization of Women and, uh, and the PAC of the California Now chapter took a lot of heat for their endorsement of J- Jerry Brown over Meg Whitman because Meg's a woman. And I guess the National Organization for Women are always supposed to what? Uh, want women over men regardless of their qualifications or party, which is a no, no, silly no. idea. Gender right? not blind. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, and in the wake of the comments, you know, Brown is said to have called Whitman a whore. At the time, National Now President Terry O'Neill said that anyone who from here on calls a woman a whore should be fired, okay? She might want to have a talk with California Now President uh, Patty Bellasama, who told TPM, this is Talking Point's memo, in response to a question that Meg Whitman could be described as a political whore. Yes, that's an accurate statement, she said. Uh, Uh Bellasama said that while calling Whitman a whore was a poor choice of words, the description was accurate. The very troubling issue uh, that is embedded in this call is what prompted the description of Meg as a whore is basically that she sold out California. This is according to, of course, it says that she sold out California for an endorsement and a $450,000 independent expenditure campaign, she said. Brown is, by the way, leading the whore by five points. So that's good news. Glad to hear that. But, you know, that that comment, like like all of these comments that hit the news and bounce around, you know, for a, a couple of news cycles and then disappear, is is all we ever get besides Bob Woodward, to see inside the real process. These people really hate and loathe each other, and they and some of them are truly despicable. You don't know how they can manage to be in the same room with one another, and yet there's a certain amount of politesse that goes along. That's why they debate so so so, so rarely. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, that's why the temperature in Congress, probably both houses, will go up dramatically if uh, the election puts a lot of angry people in there. Uh, angry, angry dialogue will en- ensue, but we never hear what really goes on. I mean, really, it takes a reporter like Woodward and and Obama's wars and those kinds of really inside historical books to show uh, us, you and me, reading that book, what the process is like. Well, Whereas the people who are voting out there don't read the books about the process, they hear the news story, oh, she, they, that, that, that nasty man called her a whore. Well, I'm going to vote against him, even though I don't live in the same state. <laughs> I'm going to fly in and vote fly in. in and, well, you know, when you I know. worked in the U.S. Senate, yeah. uh, uh, I was uh, worked with the Migratory uh, Labor Subcommittee of the Department uh, of the Committee of, of Health and Human Education or whatever it was. And I, I was able to go into executive um, uh, sessions of the committee, which means no press. They close the door. Everything changes. Mm-hmm. Everybody comes completely relaxes and starts cussing and and joking and being completely childish and doing all the kind of stuff that would make big headlines. And they still do that, by the way. They close the doors. Everybody goes crazy. No press. They just turn into boys and girls. So it's nice to hear this sort of stuff come out. Jerry Brown, I mean, he's such a loose guy. He's so real. You know what I mean? Meg is so unreal. He is so real. He called her a whore. That's (laughs) unfortunate. But he did it on a telephone that happened to get caught. It's not like he got up and pointed a finger and said, you're a whore. He mentioned it to some aide who... Cares. Oh, this is a hard one to read. It's out of Time magazine. It was one of the stranger news stories in a long time and one of the most polarizing. Firefighters in rural Tennessee looked on as a house burned because the family who lived in it had not paid the $75 annual fire protection fee. Their home was destroyed, along with three puppies that were inside. What is more striking than the story itself is the debate it has set off, which has been raging now for more than a week. While the firefighters have come in for considerable criticism, a surprising number of commentators have come to their defense and lashed out at the family that lost their home. Oh, my. They, the firefighters stood there and let this house burn to the ground with the doggies inside. Well, there is a special place in hell for them. And when they come to that place, these three dogs will will morph between Cerebus, the dog of hell, and the little mewling puppy about to have his life fried out of him because his owners had forgot to send in their $75 check. Yet underlying the Tennessee fire debate is something much more serious and fundamental than the back and forth talking head battles about who is more at fault in the incident. 
At a time when lots of Americans are debating who should have citizenship, the case of Jean and Paulette Cranick's burnt-down house hints at the more profound issue of what that citizenship should mean. The word commonwealth comes to mind. The commonwealth. Your house, my house, all the houses on this block, in this neighborhood, in this town, deserve to be saved from fire. The Cranics live in Obion County, Tennessee, outside of the city limits. This means they do not automatically get fire service. They have to pay a special fee. Family says it has paid the fee in the past, but claims they simply forgot about it this year. When the Cranics' home caught on fire, the firefighters showed up, but only to help out a neighbor whose property was in the fire's path, who had paid the fire fee. Gene Cranick says he offered on the spot to pay whatever it took to put out the fire, but the firefighters refused. It might seem that the firefighters would have a legal duty to put out the fire, but no, their boss had called them and said, put out the fire, you're fired. This is insane. This is, this is inhuman. This is crazy. But you see, in this case, the firefighters did not work for Cranick's County. They worked for a nearby city. Their position was that they had no more obligation to put out the fire than the New Jersey firemen would have to answer a call from New York. And they might answer a call from New York. They probably have a lot more civic sense up there. Obion County, Tennessee. Just cut around it and take it out of the country. Many observers were quick to find in the Cranick's burning house a parable for the increasingly harsh times in which we live. But some conservatives and libertarians had a different reaction to the Cranick story. It actually gave them hope. Sick. Glenn Beck, the conservative radio and television host and secret cross-dresser, my speculation, attracted the most attention. To prevent people from sponging off of their neighbors, he insisted, we are going to have to have these kinds of things. While Beck defended the firefighters, an on-air sidekick made fun of Mr. Cranick for trying to get the fire out and mocked his southern accent. Now, when he goes to hell with Glenn Beck, right, the dogs will be there, but they will eat his kidney and then it will grow back and then they will eat his kidney again and then it'll grow back. I tell you, this man is doomed. On conservative blogs, many of the commentators echoed Beck's views. The loss of the home to fire was indeed a bad situation for the homeowner, not for anyone else. One poster declared on Red State, a right-leaning website, Jonah Goldberg writing in the National Review Online. The National Review, I mean, I went to Yale not much after Bill Buckley. He's my elder, but I don't think he's probably more than 10 years older than I was. So I was in his wake there. And even though I have no great love for Bill Buckley's right-wingism, the man generally was a gentleman. And the, the National Review has plummeted. It has lost its sense of decency. Jonah Goldberg, writing in the National Review Online, said that letting the home burn was sad. Oh, thank you, Jonah, for your sense of pathos. But he argued it would probably save more houses over the long haul since people will now have a strong incentive to pay their fees. Yeah, somebody that you don't cure from cancer because they live over the county line. Well, lots of other people aren't going to get cancer anymore because they see what happened to them. Another writer on the same site was harsher, indicting people like the Cranics as jerks, freeloaders, and ingrates. Sig Heil. There is a major debate underway today about what citizenship should mean and what you should get just for being an American. It's not, of course, a new debate. During the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt expanded what citizens got through the New Deal. He created emergency assistance programs so people would not starve and minimum wage and maximum hours laws to protect workers from the worst excesses of the free market. And then you have this guy like Miller in, in, in Alaska that's saying unemployment insurance is unconstitutional. Today, there are politicians and commentators who want to push in the other direction to water citizenship down and turn Americans into mere customers. In this view, you should get things, including basics like fire service, not as a right of citizenship, but as a privilege with a price, right? You ain't got the shekels, it burns, baby. You ain't got the scratch, <laughs> take a match.
These are large national issues, but they are also questions that local governments are answering individually. Obion County, where the Cranics live, has looked at a variety of ways of paying for fire services. If it put a small tax on uh, uh, electric meters or simply raise the property tax modestly, it could do away with the fire fee entirely. That's the right way to go. Living in a country or city or town should bring with it a minimal level of rights that don't depend on whether you your check made it in the mail. Not luxuries, not frills, but things like having the flames put out when your house is on fire. I am deeply ashamed of this country. Hey, uh, if you have a moment, uh, we'd love for you to join us on Twitter. This is a, a whole new social network outreach that we're getting into. Uh, and I think Twitter is is a really good way for people to meet each other and to know Oz and to spread Oz. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Oz Network and click on the follow button. And we'll be making some announcements on Twitter soon and you won't want to miss them. Okay, well, even if you do want to miss them, go up because that's your choice. This comes to us from the New York Times via the Daily Beast. Across the country, the grim reality of the economic recovery is that it still looks like a recession to many people. From the Atlanta bankers whose massive office tower is one-fifth empty, to the Cherry Hill, New Jersey real estate agents who see 10% of homes selling for less than the owners owe lenders, to the Arizona subdivision residents who have to resort to soup kitchens. The new normal could last for years, the New York Times reports. Policymakers are now considering more extreme measures to deal with the worst recession since the Great Depression, one that has left a massive number of empty homes and offices. If the rate of job creation remains the same, it will take nine more years to get back all the jobs lost after the financial crisis, a number that doesn't take into account the five million new jobs the growing population will need. It will take 13 years for median housing prices to return to 2005 levels, from which they've fallen 20%. And it might take 10 more years for the vacant office buildings across the country to refill, unless they start to fill with the homeless. You know, one way to beat the recession is to squat on it. Okay, Dave, let's tang out here now at the end of another wonderful show. This isn't only tang, this is Lee Poe. Oh. But it, there are a couple of shorties here. I guess, I, I guess I'm, I'm using the sobriquet tang for all of this wonderful Chinese poetry. It doesn't matter what century it comes from. Well, we pretty They're much have been robust, sticking you know? to the 8th and ninth centuries. And well, they we're are. branching, man, right? We're branching. Well, we, we can. We've been there earlier, 3rd, 4th century, and we'll yeah. probably get a little later. But uh, here's a couple of songs, really, about uh, a, a, an area in China that Li Po really loved, which I'm not going to try to pronounce accurately. Chiu Piu, it is. Here they are. How like a bolt of white silk is this water, turning the earth into a flattened sky. But I would rather seize this moonlit night to board a wine boat and view the flowers. And here's the other one. The furnace fire lights up earth and sky. Red sparks fly pell-mell into purple smoke. Young men's faces are flushed in the moonlit night. And a song reverberates in the cold river. Oh my, oh my, and a song reverberates. They know in the how cold to, river. They know how to have yeah. a good time. You know, well, let's right? go down to the river, Hammer. Let's drink under the moon and get ready for the next uh, show. See you there. See you, See you there. there.